Hello, my name is Michael Henry. I'm Andrea Dupree. And welcome to the third edition of Speakeasy. Thanks. <laughs> it's great to be here, isn't it? It's so fun. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Mike? Well, we have a really great show lined up. So we're going to be talking with Philip Lopate, who is, I think, the king of the essay. He definitely is. I remember studying his Art of the Personal Essay in college mm-hmm. and then using it when I first started teaching. Yeah, and um, I had the the great luck of speaking with him, and it was it was nerve wracking that whole morning. I was very very nervous, thinking I'm going to be talking to Philip Lopate. Was he wise and intimidating? He was wise, but not intimidating at all. He was really? very sweet, very sweet and gentle. Yeah, you know, there was something in the art of the personal essay that I still haven't figured out, uh-huh. which is he was talking about his own naivete when he first started studying the um, personal essay, he said, I even thought that Montaigne rhymed with champagne. It doesn't? Really? I mean, how do you pronounce it? Montaigne? No, no. (laughs) I guess not, because he says it doesn't rhyme with champagne, but he doesn't say what it does rhyme with. Montaigne? That doesn't sound right either. No. Montagne. No. Yeah. That's funny. He says he said it wrong, but he doesn't tell you how to say it correctly. No. Interesting. So anyway, you got to speak with him. What did you guys talk about? A lot of different things. Um, We talked about writing about real life people and their feelings. Um, We talked about what makes a good essay and some other stuff too. You know, real life people talking about them and possibly hurting their feelings or exposing something about them they don't want to expose. That is the whole reason for fiction. Yeah, right. But people still can recognize themselves. I think you've had that experience. I have had that experience, but let's not talk about it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's talk about when people are writing nonfiction. And I remember when Mary Carr was here a couple years ago, or was it a few years ago now? Somebody asked her about this, and I've heard her say this before. But do you remember her answer when somebody said, how do you deal with the fallout from friends and family when you've written about them? Oh, yeah, I totally remember it. I'm going to paraphrase, but she said something like, well, if they didn't want to be written about, they should have behaved better, which I (laughs) thought was just great. Yeah, Yeah, that is. And that's not to say that all of her narratives feature people who behave badly. There's a few in there. There are a few few. in there. There's a couple. Well, and I think one of the things that, that she does that sort of, you know, as a teacher of nonfiction, you always tell your students, your writers is, you know, you have to own up to your own complicity in the situation. You right. know, you can't just be the victim or you can't be the saint. And if, you know, people behave badly and you portray that, you should also portray places where you behave badly because you're all just humans. That's right. And I think that's a key. And the other thing she always seems to hit, the theme she hits is writing from a place of love and trying to understand rather than from a place of condemnation and mm-hmm. trying to get revenge. Yeah. And I think that's something that Philip Lopez talks about. You'll hear, um, you know, one of the things I think he said was you write from a place of love and you also write from a place of trying to understand behavior and then understand your relationship. It was interesting. He said, you know, sometimes when I write about people, you know, they get mad and then they confront me and then we have a really deep conversation and then we end up becoming closer. And I thought that was kind of an interesting answer instead of, you know, I'm going to sue you. It's like, now we're better friends. Well, and the other alternative is the person never speaks to you again. Right. (laughs) But I think that is a fear and that is a concern that a lot of writers carry around and it can keep people from writing. Right. Andre Debus III was one of my 
instructors in graduate school. He's, he's one of my favorite writers and he has a great memoir out uh, called Townies. He said that his father, Andre Debuse, who a lot of us have read and who's a vaunted, vaunted writer, said to him at one point, I'm going to do you a favor that was never done to me, which is go ahead and write about me. You don't have to wait until I'm dead. Right. You can write about me now and I'm not going to take any of it personally. I know that it's what writers need to do. I think a lot of writers spend a lot of time worrying about other people's feelings and especially family. Yeah, that's nice that he got that permission. I think there's also that idea of, you know, you are, you have to sacrifice one thing. You have to either sacrifice the story you want to tell or the writing you want to do or your relationship. And I think if Philip Lopate would somewhere, you know, position himself on that spectrum, it would be more toward the writing. You know, and I think Mary Carr would do the same thing. He would, they would go more toward the writing. My life as a writer is actually more important than the relationship, which I think is pretty gutsy. I think it's one of the things that keeps a lot of people from writing yeah. and from loving writers. Yeah. Or other people, you know, I mean, to prepare for, for this talk, I was just watching a bunch of Louis C.K. talking about his kids. You know, I remember we were watching the episode a couple of weeks ago where his daughter walks by him and she says something, you know, how kids are. They're just very self-involved and snarky sometimes, as we all were as kids. And the daughter says something and keeps walking through and he, and he flips her off. Do you remember that? I do. <laughs> and I'm wondering, you know, so when his daughters are older and they, you know, if they ever listen to him or they watch the show, they're going to see how, you know, he, he felt about them or these, these kinds of funny situations. Are they going to be okay with that? It's a good question. And I know Knosgaard, who's written the six volume kind of autobiographical right. novel, his mother, he's talked about this, called him after I think the third or maybe even the second or third one were, were published. Right. And I think like 10% of Norway has read these books or maybe even more. Probably more I, than I can't that. remember. Yeah. But it's some insane number of people. And she called him and said, you have to stop because of your children. You have to. And meanwhile, half of his family is not speaking to him. Right. So I think now it's gotten to the point with writers as public figures where you just assume they are willing to cut those ties in order to get to their art. Or just hope that the people will deal with it. I mean, isn't, isn't the, the, the finish of that story that, you know, his mother told him to stop doing that. And then the next book he writes about her telling him not to do that. I don't know if he writes about that, but he did say he took it easier on everyone. He almost disavowed books four and five or three, four and five, I don't remember, saying he was so worried about everyone's feelings that he doesn't consider those as good as one and two and then as six. So he's brutally honest. He's brutally honest. It is about the writing. So he's way over on that spectrum too. Yeah, but he did temper it a bit for a few of those books. Yeah. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where, um, you know, Heidi Julevitz, who was here recently, it's not that she's not really writing gutsy things about these characters, but she strips all of the recognizable information about those people. Yeah, she calls it scrubbing. scrubbing. And there was an interesting interchange between her and her husband, Ben, where he talked about how concern about his family made him write a certain way. He's very well known as an experimental writer, even though some people don't like that term. He kind of hit the scene by doing these really kind of wacky, and maybe not wacky, That please, if Ben's listening, and not wacky. Um, <laughs> maybe you should change his name when you talk about him. 
So you won't know Tim. <laughs> okay, so this writer named Tim. No, <laughs> he basically started writing very experimental fiction in order to preserve his relationship with his father, who saw himself in every father figure in Ben's work. And then Heidi talked a little bit about what she did to preserve people's feelings. So I think we should listen to that for those who didn't get to go to this event. Great idea. When I was in college uh, and I was, you know, writing the kind of short stories you, you should be put in jail for yes. because they're so terrible and derivative. And I think they were also like Those very... Those are in your most recent yeah, book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just sold them all to Sotheby's. Um, <laughs> No, actually, just sort of terrible stuff, but I was seeking approval from my parents because no one else was obliged to read these things. Mm. You know, they were sort of my only real audience. I noticed something very quickly with my dad specifically that, you know, like I could have a father character who was like a newt <laughs> living in a hole on an invented planet. And, you know, my dad would say, clearly the father is me. <laughs> like, so... And I took this as a kind of challenge. I was like, okay, so what sort of character could I create where you won't think it's you? And, and it, it was just impossible. You can't and that, I, man. I mean, I feel He's like a mathematician. I credit him, though, with my whole, that He's whole like, phase of fantastical writing was only to try to distance myself <laughs> from being accused of writing biographically. But he always only saw himself in it. And it was sort of interesting to me. Early on, I mean, this is, this would sort of relate to the folded clock because, you know, your dad is in that book, but he probably he would never know. But he hasn't read it. <laughs> but but That's what why about he was like the only person I knew I could write whatever I wanted because he would never read it. So obviously, this was a diary, and so I really wanted to be able to be truthful. But I also am kind of pathologically concerned about hurting people's feelings. Like, you were really concerned. Really concerned. I mean, I'm so concerned that like probably like anybody I talk to tonight will probably get an email from me tomorrow because I will have relived everything that we talked about tonight, and I will decide that you're offended by something that I said. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is sort of how I get through the. The night, yeah. um, and uh, and so I am. Um, but you, I remember you were very concerned with all the yeah. portraits, and there yes, were some people concerned. you were going to be comfortable with checking with. Yeah, some people I checked and others with. you were like, I'll never send them this, right? Because you sort of knew. Honestly, like I have now found myself. Um, since writing this book, I'm now on like nonfiction panels. And I mean, I tell you, there does seem to be a lot of discussion when you get on these panels and, and these people have all thought about this stuff a lot more than yeah. I have, obviously. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of when are you writing to hurt somebody's feelings or not hurt them? When is it okay? And how do yeah. you decide? And how do you know? And it's like your perspective. So you can, and I mean, so many people, if you guys have written memoirs or know people who have written memoirs, like enemies are made. Yeah. Even people who you think you've written really fondly about, they fucking hate you and will never talk to you. I again. think being written about is you know? a very unsettling experience, even when it's flattering. I can admit. We you, had a hard, interesting. I, I read time. early drafts, and even when it was, I suppose, flattering, I couldn't see it, and I found right. it really unsettling to read this take on some shared experience. Yeah, I think it is really hard to be written about, um, even if, but, you know, I think what you were saying, you know, in terms of, I felt like if I was coming from a sort of a loving place, right, yeah. that then, not that that excused it and suddenly I like, oh, well, I love you so I can trash you, you know, I mean, it's not like that gave me this free range, but I think you can kind of tell if someone's intentions are like, secretly, I really want to undermine you and take you down, you know? But what interested me too 
about th- this whole experience is so, so Heidi would be writing about somebody and would take steps to disguise it a little bit. So she would change a gender, change uh, a profession, yeah. literally disfigure somebody so entirely that they became that she their would, true selves. Well, yeah. but, <laughs> but the interesting side effect is the composite she created would suddenly trigger yeah. an accusation from some per- other person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who would I had, be like, how yeah. the fuck did you know yeah, no, that I had, about me? I had somebody... So suddenly, <laughs> yeah. the steps you were taking to actually solve this problem yeah, created crea- new it ones. created way more problems. Yeah, I actually did have somebody contact me, and she's just like, you know, I told you that stuff about my boyfriend in private, you know, because they had had this crazy breakup and ex-wife and this and that and the other thing. And meanwhile, I was just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't write about that anywhere. And then she named the section, and then it turned out it was this very elaborate, I'm not fictionalizing, but identity scrubbing activity that I had done and I'd scrub these people so hard that they looked like other people. But also, (laughs) but it suggests that there's just these universal character character territories and you tap into them. So it seems like in this clip that they both lost a little bit in terms of their relationships with people. Have you ever faced repercussions for writing about somebody in your family? Um, No. They're not really communicative, so I don't, I don't know. I think I've written a lot about my dad, who's still around, and he reads. I do worry about it. I think of the things that he has read that I've written about him. He's a very stoic guy, so he doesn't really say anything. So I just hope that everything's all cool with him, you know? But then also I think, you know, I'm just going to write it because even if it ever gets published, you know, th- these people probably aren't going to read it. Right. You know, and, you know, I did change, you know, I do change names and things like that. But to go to the deeper philosophy, it's sort of like, well, you know, this is this is the story I want to tell. And it's the story of my experience. So I I can own it. You know, I, I have a right to tell it. Well, and you're not somebody who goes in with a spirit of condemnation. No, I think, you know, overall, my writing, if there's a theme, it's like stupid shit I've done, you know, <laughs> if, if there's, you know, in terms of nonfiction. So, right. you know, I'm, I'm totally willing to, um, to look at that, you know, for, for the humor and the sadness as well within <laughs> it. But enough about me. Let's talk about Philip Lopate. Philip is the author of more than a dozen books, including three personal essay collections, Bachelorhood, Against Joie de Vivre, Portrait of My Body, and Waterfront. He directs the graduate nonfiction program at Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn with his wife and daughter. This is quite an honor to be here with Philip Lopate one of my favorite essayists of all time. His anthology, The Art of the Personal Essay, to me is a classic book that any serious writer of nonfiction must have, and they must have read. So the seminar you're teaching today is called The Double Portrait, Writing About Others in Relation to Ourselves. Um, So without giving too much away, I'm really curious, why is this important in literary nonfiction? Well, uh, people want to write about themselves in literary nonfiction. Uh, in personal essays and memoirs. And uh, one of the uh, key ways of indicating character is in relationship with someone else. That's where you are tested. And I think that the double portrait is often a good way of showing, let's say, conflicting needs, how people go at a relationship from different ends, you know, and they they either resolve it or they don't. Um, I'm very interested myself in, in friendship especially, and 
I brood a great deal about friendships that ended, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. In some ways, they can be more painful than when love affairs end because most people expect love affairs to be transient. Uh, but <laughs> but if you become friends with someone, there's no uh, foreseeable reason not to continue being friends uh, forever. And yet, often that doesn't happen. And so one of the things that interests me in the double portrait is to trace the arc of a relationship, right. uh, which gets you out of the static and introduces a dynamic element. So you learn a little bit about yourself by looking at not only the relationship, but characterizing that other person as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's interesting, the idea of you can have multiple friends, but you really are only supposed to have one spouse or long-term lifetime love. Right. Right. Yeah. So you can have, you know, you now, can be well, a polygamist you, with friends, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. You can be promiscuous in friendship. <laughs> right. Uh, but the double portrait uh, uh, encapsulates, you can do yourself and your spouse. You can do yourself and a parent, for mm-hmm. instance. That's right. one of the, um, the main subjects of double portraits is... Um, a father or a mother, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are friends. Uh, there are failed friendships, acquaintanceships. You know, it's it's it really is interesting when you start looking at another person and saying, what is it about this person that attracts, repels, baffles, and so on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm teaching nonfiction classes or memoir classes, um, I'm always talking about, you know, you have to acknowledge your complicity in the relationship, but nobody, so. nobody really enjoys reading a victimhood narrative. And sometimes that's difficult because it's sort of, if you're writing about a parent, for example, mm-hmm. you know, what is your complicity in, you know, sort of having a parent that was, you know, quote unquote mean to you? You were just a kid. Yes, but children can be very seductive. <laughs> they can be very manipulative. Right. Uh, and I certainly agree with you 100% that there has to be some complicity and preferably even some flaw in the eye character. Right. Because nobody wants to read about somebody who is uh, so good and everybody else is not as good as he or she is, you know? Yes, yes. I, I, you know, I keep thinking about, you know, once I had kids, you know, I, I wrote lots of, I've written lots of, you know, nonfiction about, you know, my relationship with my dad and my, you know, my mother and yes. sort of like, oh, you know, they were, they were okay and blah, blah, blah. And then the idea of, you know, once I had kids, I realized, wow, I was probably a really annoying kid at times. Yes. And so that was really kind of an eye-opening experience for me. Yes. This reminds me of something Jamaica Kincaid once said to me. She said, I used to write a lot about my mother and uh, all of her sins until I became a mother. And I thought, actually, she did a pretty good job. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. that change of perspective is very important. And that's part of the double portrait, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I like, I like in general the idea of, a, of doubleness, of a double perspective. I've written about that as well, about having to write not just about the way you were, but what you make of the way you were now, how how different right. you are, um, able to look at things with detachment, able to look at them with distance, and not uh, from a victim point of view. Exactly. So that in a way, that's kind of another double portrait where yeah. you are looking at your own self. Exactly. And give, creating a portrait of that and then telling us what you think about that person. Exactly. That's, that, that's Vivian Gornick's point in the situation in the right. story, which is, it's not just what happens, it's what you make of what happens. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, I, I, we, I always talk about that with my students, you know, this, that idea of, you know, the retrospective narrator. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I tell them, 
and I might be wrong here, but I say the only the only book, the only memoir I know of that is really does has no retrospection is Angela's Ashes because right. it's first person present. Right. Can you think of any others? I think there I think there are a few I've written about this and uh, uh, but I think that Angela's Ashes really is close to being like a nonfiction novel in that you just get one scene after another. One of the curious things about that is that he wrote three memoirs. The second one was Tis and the and the third was um Teacher Man, I think right. it was called. And um I I like the third one very much. It's really about uh, him as an as an adult being a teacher in which there's a lot of retrospection and a lot of perspective. So what happened was basically he grew the Frank character. Uh when he was writing about Frank as a kid, he stayed close to Frankie's perspective. But later on, you know, uh there was a much more rounded and detached perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way of saying that. Um which leads me to my next question, I hope. Do you think an exploration of self, which is uh you know, an exploration of self in, in various modes, is really the heart of a good essay? I think an exploration of consciousness is the heart of a good essay. Interesting. Um so um it's really thinking, you know, and tracing the thoughts uh, and and making a, a tracking one's consciousness because there are there are writers who who don't tell us very much about their private lives but but we still come to know them uh, through their through their thinking on the page through their right. consciousness right um so in any case an exploration is important um and and there has to be something that you didn't know when you started out writing the piece uh, that you discover because that brings a kind of excitement to it. If you know every, everything before you start writing, it's going to be dead on the page. Right. You have to discover something, but then there's this sort of artifice with it where you have to recreate the essay and make it seem like the essay itself is this incredible discovery when you already know what it is. And so then you can craft that discovery. Well, ideally you actually do discover something as you're writing right and 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 then the writing picks up it usually changes in rhythm you know right and and becomes a little bit more exciting um so but then of course you have to you do have to craft it and what you're really after is making a literary artifact you know right Right. And I think, you know, um, you mentioned Leslie Jameson earlier. I was, you know, when you were just saying that, I was thinking about how her essays, you know, especially the empathy exams, right. um, there's, there are many discoveries and yet the discoveries are in many ways just more questions. Yes. Well, I think that one of the things that makes a good writer and especially a good essayist is generating questions. And in fact, in terms of being able to write one book after another, it's more mm -hmm. important to be able to generate questions than to provide answers because you basically are generating new writing problems for yourself and that'll keep you going. Right. So questions are more important than answers. Yeah, I think, I think that's the experimental science part of writing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think um, this reminds me of uh, the poet Thomas Lux. He said, and he, he was talking about drafting poetry. Right. He said, it takes me 50 drafts to get to the first real draft of the poem, and then another 50 drafts to make it sound really, really spontaneous. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think in some ways, you know, especially lately when you see, when you read essays, they sort of backed away from that artifice a little bit. They really want to not create that sense of answers or this sense of, here I am thinking deeply, how wonderful. It's really, I'm exploring these questions and I don't necessarily know what the answers are. 
Well, I think that that's true and not true. Yeah. Uh, that is, uh, you know, we all go back to Montaigne's What Do I Know? Right. And the sense that we're all ignorant and changeable. And at the same time, <laughs> Montaigne could be quite assertive, you know. And so you have to cop to as much understanding as you have and as much wisdom as you have. I think that's that's very important, not to pretend to be more confused than you really are. That's another, right. <laughs> kind, of, that's another kind of honesty to try to to try to get as much clarity and as much understanding as you can. Right. So whenever my student writes something like, "I can't put into words or uh, what this was," or um, I "You won't believe it if I, I can't believe it myself," I think, "Oh, hey, you're the writer. You have to put into words. You have to believe it. You have to stop um, being such a dunderhead about all this," you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid to tell us what you think. In make, other words. An, make an attempt, you know, right. make, a, make a good faith attempt. And I think that a lot of times when an essay succeeds, it's because the essayist has convinced the reader that he or she has made a good faith attempt to get at as much understanding as can be gotten. Right. There's a certain amount of ambition that you have to have. Yeah. And I think guts and bravery in some ways. Yeah. I think honesty is very important. Yeah. And for me, uh, the pursuit of wisdom is also important. That you, you know, that you can't just be complacent about being in the midst of total confusion, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you have right. to, and I do think people are wiser than they let on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that idea of bravery, um, sort of makes me think of, um, probably what I, what I'm guessing is the final question. Um, the idea of writing about people that are still around, that you yes. still have relationships with, right. um, that does require a certain amount of bravery because you may say things that they might not be terribly happy about. Can yes. you talk a little bit about that? Well, you have to pick your spots, right? Um, obviously, uh, dead people don't sue you. So that's a good place to start. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think, Part of it depends on how important is the story you want to tell. And then I, I think that you have to kind of write about other people, not with an axe to grind, but to try to understand again, uh, put yourself in their shoes as well. But you can't avoid this problem because you, you can't write autobiographical writing without starting to talk about other people. Right. So be prepared to offend some people. And you can offend people in all kinds of ways. You can offend them by praising them. You can offend them by by writing about them, but briefly when they feel you should have spent more pages on them, you can offend them by not writing about them. Right. So essentially, uh, you will offend, but you still have to, um, think long and hard about what it will mean to the person. And sometimes, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's worth it to take the risk. And sometimes it becomes a way of, uh, communicating to them something you otherwise could not have communicated that you feel is important for them to understand. Right. In a very public way, but in that's, that's probably way. okay. Yes. Um, Heidi Julevitz was here recently and she was talking about the folded clock in which she said, you know, she, um, in order to protect her relationships with certain people, she would completely scrub any sort of identifying details about who they were. She would change gender. She would change age. Yes. She would change, you know, the way they looked. And she said the weirdest thing happened was that other people said, they identified themselves with these new yes. constructed personas and they got angry with her. It's like, right. I can't believe, I told you, I told you that in confidence. Right, exactly. <laughs> so she said, even though, uh, you know, she, she fictionalized people and then people identified themselves with the fictionalized people. Yes. I, I once wrote a novel and it was a very autobiographical novel. 
and I, I changed the name from Philip Lope to Eric Eisner. And, and I got a letter from a lawyer saying, my client, Eric Eisner, is suing you for writing about him. And, you know, it was just a nuisance suit. <laughs> Nothing was going to come. But I knew full well that I had written about myself, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you know, one way or another, you know, it's, it is it is a tricky business. Um, but um, the problem with what Heidi did, and I like that book, was that uh, for me the problem is that a lot of what I think about people does grow co- directly out of the precise aspects of them. Mm-hmm. So if this person is an architect and I make him a composer, I'm going to lose a lot. Mm-hmm. If I make him or her, I'm going to lose a lot. If they come from the Midwest and I make them come from the South, I'm going to lose a lot. Right. Um, so I, I would rather uh, work with the particulars, actually. Yeah, I think that that's a smart way of thinking about it. I think you, you can get in trouble fictionalizing because then where do you stop? Well, yes, where do you stop? And also, um, you're lying to yourself if you think that, uh, that your only interest is in some basic core that has nothing to do with, um, with uh, who, what, where, when, and how. You right, know? right. So as a, as a, um, a pretty well known SES, have you been sued a lot? No, I haven't because I, I try to make friends with poor people who can't hire lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that, that's, that's a very wise thing. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. Please feel free to write us your response at speakeasy at lighthousewriters.org. Speakeasy is brought to you by the National Endowment for the Arts, the SCFD, Colorado Creative Industries, and the members of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. We want to thank Philip Lopate, Ben Marcus, Heidi Julevitz, and our wonderful producer, Jeremy Brisky. See you next time.